Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In the previous program, I introduced the subject of overcoming sin, that this is an objective that many people have in the Christian life. They believe that this is the objective of the Christian life. Not everybody, of course, but there are many people who believe that what it means to be a Christian is that you devote your life to trying to get all of the sin out of your life. Now, of course, this is a very sad way to live, a very depressing way to live, because we certainly are not going to be able to achieve this. I think the evidence is overwhelming to show that a person is never going to get all of the sin out of their life. And, of course, when I mention that to people, they will often concede, they will often agree that you're never going to be able to get all of the sin out of your life, and so you try to get as much as you can out of your life. So I then follow up with, well, then how much do you need to get out of your life before you feel satisfied, before you feel you have achieved enough success so that you can feel confident that your God accepts you, so that you don't have to be terrified of your God anymore. You don't have to assume that he is completely ashamed of you. How much sin do you have to get out of your life before you have achieved that? And, of course, there is no satisfactory answer to that question, not if we are true to what we know about the holiness of our God. When we understand the absolute holiness of our God, we could never agree that that is acceptable. But this is how people have to live by default. They have to live this way because there is no alternative. I will tell you how most people manage to get through this. What most people whom I have encountered, those who I have personally interacted with, the way that they cope with this failure in their life is they just simply look for many other people who are not as holy as they are. They will just simply try to locate and identify a lot of people who struggle with more sin or sin that is more evil than theirs from their point of view. And then they will make a comparison between themselves and others and say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as that other person. I'm not as evil as they are. And so I guess I must be okay, especially if those people would be considered to be saved. Then I certainly am saved and I certainly will have a place with God. And I'm sure that he'll sort these things out sometime in heaven when it's convenient. I'm sure he'll address these things. So in the previous program, I explained that what people will try to do in order to achieve that which cannot be achieved, but they do try very hard to succeed at this life that they will never succeed at, they will still try. And in the previous program, I explained that people will use fear, that they will try to terrify other people, or maybe try to terrify themselves in the process, into trying to stop sinning. There are many preachers, for example, many pastors, whom I have known, who have been very aggressive about telling people to be afraid of God, be terrified of God, 
and let that be your inspiration to stop sinning, because secretly they themselves were dealing with some sin in their life, and they were preaching that, hoping that maybe they might believe that themselves. I don't think that every preacher who proclaims a message such as that is dealing with personal issues and that they are trying to convince themselves that they should be afraid of God in order to try to overcome their own sin. But I've known enough to be able to mention that as a reality that we should at least be aware of, that this does happen, has happened, and will probably happen in the near future again. What else do people use? They try to use shame. They try to use guilt. In the previous program, I referred to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, where he said that he is not ashamed of us, that there is a contradiction with this doctrine when you consider a passage such as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, that you cannot say simultaneously that he is not ashamed of us, but that we do need to feel ashamed so that we'll stop sinning. What this means is, is that if we are going to see a reduction of sin in our lives, it will have to be achieved in a different way. When you consider 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 that I read in the previous program, that perfect love casts out fear, if that's the case, then there is a contradiction, there is a conflict. You have to recognize that if sin is going to be reduced... If you're going to experience a reduction of sin in your life, you're going to have to find some other means by which you're going to achieve that besides being terrified, scared into reducing the sin in your life. Otherwise, you're going to have to give up on the love of God. You're going to have to give up on 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, as well as many other verses that explain clearly that our God loves us. This means that there must be another way, that these ways are not only unacceptable, but they are unscriptural, and that you need to recognize this. I believe you need to concede and accept that these methodologies, which are clearly failing, they are not succeeding, that they are in contradiction with the scriptures, in addition to the failure that you are witnesses of. Let it go. Let it go. Just let it go. Give up on the usage of fear, shame, and guilt to try to get people's flesh under control. It is okay to let it go because it isn't working anyway. There must be another way because this certainly is not it. So what do people do? What other methodologies or approaches or strategies do people try to employ in order to get people to stop sinning? Well, instead of using the stick, as I described, fear, guilt, shame, I would describe that as the stick, they might use the carrot. You know, the carrot or the stick. We'll try the carrot. How might we be able to utilize a carrot, something that somebody wants in order to get them to stop sinning, some kind of incentive, an incentive besides punishment, fear, guilt, shame, a different kind of incentive. This is what people will end up doing. They tried the incentive of God will give you something in return if you will stop that sin. He will reward you in some way. The first way that people will normally describe this reward that is anticipated or expected is they will say that God will bless you. He will bless you. And chances are you do need some blessings in your life. 
Let's take a look at your checkbook, for example. We can probably tell that you need a lot of blessings in your life. This is how it's advertised. You want something from God? You want Him to bless you? Then stop the sin in your life. This will be the means, people believe, that this will be the means by which we will be able to get people's flesh under control. They will do it because they expect to be blessed by God. We can look into the law for this purpose. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 28, a great description of the blessings that you will receive if you will obey the law. Now, of course, if you fail, then you're going to be cursed by God, which is also described there in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And by the way, is anyone ever going to be able to obey the law to the satisfaction of God? Of course not. So everyone by default is going to be cursed by God. No one will ever experience those blessings. The Lord could offer anything. He could offer you the moon. He could offer you your own planet. He could offer you whatever. It doesn't matter what he offers you because you're going to fail. You're going to sin. It's going to happen. And so he never has to deliver anything. That is why you must rest in. You must trust in his grace and mercy and enter into the new covenant because the old is not going to help you. The blessings that are described in the Old Covenant are blessings such as you will lend and not borrow. You will have plenty of flour in your kneading bowl. Things like that. What are those blessings? Those blessings are the blessings of the flesh. Those are the blessings that are offered to those as an incentive to get people to put the sin out of their life and obey the commandments of God. This, of course, never worked in the history of Israel. Why would you think it's going to work with you? People advertise that you have some greater power within you. You have the Holy Spirit who will now enable you to achieve success. Yes? When? When is that going to happen? Point out to me somebody in this world, right now, today, who has ever experienced the reality of what you suggest. I don't think that that's real. I really don't. I do believe that the Holy Spirit within us will guide us, will direct us, and that we will experience a reduction of sin in our lives. I am saying that I do not see that this is the way, the way of blessings. I do not believe that offering the carrot of blessings as an incentive is going to be the way. To me, the way is a change of heart, not the offer of some delivery of some blessing of some kind but that he would change who we are, that he would change our desires, the desires of our hearts, that he would give us new desires in our hearts, that we would not sin because we don't want to, that that would be a divine experience. It would be a miracle of God. But for now, people are still preoccupied with the carrot and the stick. They really believe that we must advertise blessings, that we must offer blessings, And of course, if you fail, then he will not deliver. Sometimes I ask people, what are the blessings that you expect? You personally, not what you tell other people about what they will receive. What do you want? What is it that you want from God? What do you expect him to deliver through your obedience to God, through your repentance from your sin? What do you really want from him? When I ask that question 
of people, which I have done on numerous occasions. I do ask this kind of a question, and as a sincere question, not as a condemning question, I really want to know, what do you really expect God to do for you through your repentance and obedience? When I ask that, most of the time, people will really hesitate. They will really hesitate to answer because they know that their answer can sound very ungodly, that their answer might be something that expresses their own personal fleshly self-interests. When people give a lot of thought to this and they really delay, they will normally give me answers that talk about other people and how other people who are close to them might be able to benefit in order to try to avoid the blessings that they hope, I believe they hope, that they will receive that they will personally benefit from. If they wait long enough, they will think of an alternative besides confessing that they're really into this for their own personal self-indulgence, is how I personally perceive a lot of the answers that I get from people when I ask them, what do they really expect to receive from God? But of these things that they are expecting to receive from God, are they really, truly things that the Lord promised that he is really offering? I mean, consider a simple passage such as 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, where it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Again, in verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, he has already given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so, what else do you want? What else are you looking for? Are you looking for something else besides all that you really need for life and for godliness? That's what people are suggesting. They're suggesting that there has to be something else. There must be something else. There's no longer any incentive if we have it all. That's a concern that I believe people wrestle with and struggle with and would cause them to perhaps avoid Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Maybe avoid it a little bit. If not blessings, how about the fulfillment of promises that he has made? Promises that he has made to others in the past. Promises that you perhaps perceive that he has made to you now. In verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Well then, what other promises would you like? What other promises would be of true value if they are not described here, if they are not included here? What more do you really want from the Lord? You know, the problem that I believe that we are facing when it comes to this is that people have no concept of what they have in Christ, of what they have been given when it comes to life and godliness, of what they have been given when it comes to the promises of God. They have no concept of these things. They simply do not understand 
They do not know. And one of the reasons why people do not understand and do not know is because they are told these things that contradict what I just read. They are told things like, God will bless you if you will stop sinning. Well, then how can you say you already have all the blessings in heavenly places? How can you say that if you're going to live a life trying to obtain the blessings in heavenly places, all those things that you need for life and godliness? There is a contradiction there. There is a conflict there which tells me that the premise that people are trying to live by of we are going to live by the carrot is defective. All right, This point of view, this belief that we can motivate people to stop sinning by offering them the carrot instead of the stick is dysfunctional. It isn't working. Now, take a look around. Look around in the world that you are a part of, and you will find numerous people who are trying to overcome sin, who are trying to get other people to overcome sin by offering them the carrot. You will notice that it isn't working. It just isn't happening. There is still a tremendous amount of dysfunction in those congregations of people, in the individual people themselves. They are struggling with this contradiction, with this uncertainty, with this confusion. This is not how our God created us. He did not create us to function by either the stick or the carrot, by the carrot or the stick. He did not create us to function this way. This is not how we were designed. We were not designed to live a life of sin. That's true. And we were also not designed to try to overcome our sin through the beatings or the blessings, through the promises or through the threats of shame, guilt, and fear. That is just simply not how we were designed. If you believe that this is how you are to function, then all I can say is try harder. Do it more. Believe it more. Embrace it more. Be more committed. Be more devoted. Push that sin out of your life. Really do it. I say that because I know of no other way for you to finally concede that it isn't working for you, that it just isn't giving you the results that you are hoping to achieve. Your goals are not being met. You're living a life separated from the love of God. You're living a life separated from the acceptance of God. You are not experiencing a personal, interactive, peaceful relationship with your God because of your preoccupation with your sin and your flesh. Only when a person is truly committed to what they suggest or what they proclaim, it's only when you will be fully committed to this belief and really embrace it to the fullness that you can in the energy that you have within you, will you eventually see that it doesn't work, that it's not real, that it is pure fantasy, and then give it up. Give it up. Now, I understand that it can be very difficult to give something like this up if you don't know what else to do, if you don't know what the alternative is, that there is an alternative, because for the most part, people generally believe that life here in this world is either about indulging the flesh or restraining the flesh. They don't know that there is another way of life to live according to the Spirit of God. Because of the absence of this knowledge, the absence of this understanding, people will generally redouble their efforts when it comes to the carrot and the stick. What else will people do? Well, they'll offer rewards. 
if there's nothing more for the Lord to give you in terms of blessings, if all of his promises have already been fulfilled, then maybe we could offer rewards in the future. If you have everything you need for life and godliness now, then maybe we could offer the incentive of you will experience more. You will receive more once you're dead and you go to heaven. This is another approach that people will use. They will say things like, well, you might not receive anything now. They generally do not say that there's nothing more for the Lord to give you if he has already given you everything you need for life and godliness. They will say that you will receive things in the future and that will give you hope. It will give you incentive in light of the fact that you have nothing right now because, of course, you have all of this sin in your life. But don't worry, get rid of enough of it and you will be rewarded. That's what people are suggesting. You will be rewarded in heaven, that that will be the incentive, that you will eventually get a delivery that will compensate you for all the sacrifices you made when you could have indulged your flesh and you decided not to. You decided to suffer and to restrain yourself, to restrict yourself. Don't worry, he'll reward you in the end, when you die, when you see him in heaven. That's when he'll deliver. People will say things like that. Now, I certainly do believe that there will be rewards in heaven. I believe that. We have the testimony in the scriptures that say that that is something that we will experience. What those rewards will be, how they will be dispensed, what their value really will be. I look forward to discovering more about what those rewards will mean and how that will be experienced between us and our God. But this is how most people view these rewards for themselves. The way that they generally view this is from the point of view of pride. In general, it's an act of pride, or it's something that feeds a person's pride. One way that I expose this is by suggesting to people, well, listen, I understand that you're after these rewards, and that these rewards are very important to you, and I can appreciate that. They do sound like they are moments of appreciation, that they are moments of recognition, And if that's what the Lord would like to do, then we should certainly honor that. But I'll tell you what, when I'm in heaven, when I finally get there, if you're there before me or I'm there after you, whenever you get there and you know that I'm around, I want you to look me up. Look me up and invite me over to your mansion. Because I'd like to stop by. I would like to come by and take a look at all of the rewards that you have received from God. Seriously. Let me come over and take a look at All of these rewards, and you probably will have to have a big wall in order to support all of these rewards. You know, the kind of wall that would be attached to a vaulted ceiling, for example, in order to have enough space, in order to place all of these rewards that you will have that I can come and view. And, of course, I can look at these and covet all of these rewards, thinking that I would really like to have those for myself. Is that what this is about? There are a lot of people who do have that kind of an attitude. Enough people that I feel comfortable with mentioning that. That there are many people who are motivated out of pride. They're not really motivated out of a desire to be a part of the work of God. They're not really motivated because they want to know their God or because they really want to experience the transformation that will occur if a person is growing in Christ Jesus. Instead, what they're thinking is that they're going to obtain something that they will be able to look at and use as a way of building up their personal pride. Now, of course, this does not always happen. Not everyone feels this way. I just believe that there are enough people who do feel that way that it's worth mentioning. 
But for those who don't feel that way, is this enough incentive? Is this enough incentive to get people to stop sinning? It's not. It's not going to be enough to get people's sin out of their lives. It is a failure. If you don't believe me, then you need to get out a little bit more often and encounter a lot of people, as I have, who will tell you that it is not adequate, it is not enough in order to get people to get all of the sin out of their lives as much as they would like the rewards, as much as they would like to get the sin out of their lives, it still is not enough incentive to do it completely, to do it adequately, to be able to stand before God without shame, without guilt. It is not real. There has to be another way, another way of life besides this, because this way of life is empty. And until a person is willing to acknowledge that and accept that, they won't be open to understanding or to knowing the new way of life that has nothing to do with the restraint or the indulgence of the flesh, but has to do with living by the Spirit, being guided and led by the Holy Spirit of God. There is another way of life besides the indulgence of the flesh, the restraint of the flesh. There is another way. This other way of life has to do with first trusting and resting in what our God has accomplished on our behalf in Christ Jesus. A lot of the work that I have done that is found in the radio archive of Living God Ministries has been produced for the purpose of explaining this. In addition to that, I've produced a lot of programs that help you understand and take away many of the barriers that will prevent you from entering into the new covenant, entering into this new way of life. Begin with a clear understanding of the gospel. Move into the subject of forgiveness. Grow in your understanding of the will of God and the inheritance that you have in Christ. Learn about your identity in Christ in terms of who you are. I've produced many programs on these subjects in order to open the door, but you must walk through. I can only testify that this is real, but until you experience life in the new covenant yourself and discover how your God will do a work in your heart to transform who you are until you experience it personally, there will be a limit concerning your understanding of what I am talking about. But I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net you